Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Continuing in our series called Seek First. It is actually our theme for 2024, and it comes from this passage of Scripture where Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, Seek first the kingdom, uh, or excuse me, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything you need will be added to you. And so in conjunction with that, we are going through the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5 through 7. And I love this collection of teachings because it really shows us what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, and beyond that, what it looks like as a community that embodies the kingdom of heaven. And if you're here and maybe you have missed a couple weeks, maybe you missed a a few sermons, I do want to take a moment and just encourage you to go back and check out that content. Not because we need likes or views. Um, To be honest, we don't get a lot of those. We don't really care about those. Uh, But because as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we are going to be dissecting very specific passages of Scripture. And as we do this, it is really important that we as a community have proper context. That as we look at the Scripture, we can read and interpret and apply uh, with the reference of the totality of the teaching that we find here. Because they're all meant to build off of each other. And so I want to invite you to join us in this journey of going through the Sermon on the Mount. And you can do that by equipping yourself by going back and checking out any of the content that you missed. Will you do it? Perfect. So before we go to our key passage this morning, I actually want to back up just a bit to the very beginning of Matthew chapter five, because I think that there's a very important principle that we need to have and understand before we can go to our text today. So Matthew chapter five, verse one says this. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. The reason I want to highlight this detail is because it's really clear here that while there was a crowd that had gathered around Jesus, who he is directing his teaching to and his focus to is, in fact, his disciples. In fact, Luke 6 actually corroborates this detail. And I think that this is important because it has two major implications for us today. First, this collection of teachings is not meant to correct behavior or culture outside of the gathering. It's not a whipping post for the world. It's not a hammer of judgment. It's not an indictment on culture. It is, in fact, our inherited identity. It's how we ought to act and live and treat each other. It's the very thing that sets this gathering apart from the rest of the world. Secondly, if you're here today and maybe you're new, maybe a friend brought you, maybe you're distant from Jesus, or maybe you know very little about him or about the church, I want to let you know that while much of this teaching may not apply directly to you, my hope is that as we talk about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that you would catch a glimpse of his character of his love, his grace, his mercy, and that you would experience the same life and hope that I know many in this very room can testify to this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. So with that, let us go to our key passage of scripture. It's found directly after the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter five, verse 13, and it is, of course, the words of Jesus. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. 
Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. To synopsize this sermon, this conversation, we are titling it From Darkness to Doxazo. From Darkness to Doxazo. And yes, we will define that word in case you were concerned. But let's pray and we'll get into it. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for great leadership. I thank you that your presence is here and you're already, you're already doing something and we haven't even gotten into it yet. We, we acknowledge you. Selfishly, I pray, help me to get myself out of the way uh, because we don't need a good, inspiring conversation. We don't need a TED Talk. We, we just need you. We need to, to hear you and, and we need you to speak to us. So we invite your spirit into this place. Bring uh, conviction. Let our hearts be receptive to what you want to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You can say amen, come on. Um, how many of you guys here love math? Where are my nerds at? Come on, show of hands. Okay, dude, here's my, come on. I'm so glad you, last service, there was like five of them. And I was like, what's wrong with this service? They don't love math. I love math. I am, uh, and if you're here and you don't love math, I'm gonna convince you in the next few seconds. But I believe that all of life is math. That, uh, you know, uh, how much money do we have for this? Do we have budget for that? All of life really revolves around math. And uh, if you're here and you like sports or you enjoy sports, sports is math. Whether that's points, statistics, metrics. In fact, if you're here and you like football, anybody like football? You like math. And if you're here and you play fantasy football, oh, you guys know, you guys love math. Come on, you're doing more math than anybody. So math is, math is fantastic, and I love math. And if you're here and you don't love math, what's wrong with you? Again, what is, what is your problem? You're probably deeply in debt or in need of a budget. <laughs> I'm sorry, or let's be honest, you have somebody in your life who does love math and they help you accordingly. But I love math, I'm a huge fan of math, and in that, I must confess that I have a certain strong distaste for a subfamily or a subgenre of math, and that, that genre is algebra. I do not care for algebra. Yes, sighs of lament, I feel it in my spirit. I don't care for algebra. I spent two years of high school uh, trying to understand and assimilate all these algebraic equations into my mind. Two years spent trying to put the alphabet into math. And to the best of my knowledge and my experience, I have not once utilized any of these single algebraic equations in my practical everyday life, not once. And look, I'm sure some of you here can and do, and you'll probably come up after service and you'll tell me how I got it wrong, and that's fine, but that has not been my experience. And while we're talking about it, do you ever wonder why they teach us two years of algebra, but they never teach us how to do our taxes? What's up with that, man? Last I checked, I can't go to prison for not knowing algebra. Just, just throwing that out there. But begrudgingly, I will admit this morning in front of God and everybody that there is one overarching life lesson that I have been able to take away from the painful two years of algebra. And I wanna share that life lesson with you today because I believe it applies to our passage. So here's the lesson. If you have made a mistake in the equation, you will often end up with the wrong answer. You can have 90% of the equation right in that extra little 10%. That'll cause you to deviate from the correct answer. Furthermore, you can have the answer, but if you do not understand the equation, you will not be able to replicate success. 
Well, I think what happens a lot of the time is we approach this metaphor in Matthew 5 and we read it and we tend to pull the answer out of the equation. And when we do this, we remove some of these surrounding factors that give this metaphor so much power and meaning. And before I go down this road too far, I don't mean to suggest by the term of equation that this metaphor is some sort of religious rule set that we're meant to follow, that if we do X, Y, and Z, we'll end up at a predetermined outcome. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that like an equation, these surrounding factors matter. That there are some details found in this metaphor that have so much power and meaning. And originally when I started writing the sermon, um, I thought that, that this was going to be a, a fairly straightforward ordeal. And then yet as I begin to dig into some of the meaning of the passages that Jesus uses in this metaphor, I realized, oh wow, this is a lot more complicated than I thought. Uh, and in fact, it became so difficult that uh, I really struggled with putting this sermon together in a way that was cohesive and that really made sense. And so whenever I am personally struggling with lofty ideas in writing, there's sort of this phrase that floats around in the back of my mind. You've probably heard it before. Uh, I think it's attributed to the U.S. Navy, and it goes something like this. Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> Words every communicator should live by, Right. So in my best attempt to keep it simple for us this morning, I have identified three questions that I want us to ask about this metaphor. Three questions that I want us to ask about salt and about light. And my hope and my goal and my prayer this morning is that at the conclusion of our time together, that we would resolve to display Jesus to a world in desperate need of light. Amen. So with that, the very first question that I think we need to ask about this metaphor, to ask about salt and light, is who? Who is salt and light? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're probably wondering, like, hey, don't we know the answer to that one? Isn't that, uh, isn't that us? Isn't that the disciples? Isn't that the church? Well, while I think this is technically the right answer, I think it lacks a little bit of the equation. Because I think what happens is we tend to read this passage of scripture and we automatically identify with salt and light without any sort of scrutiny. And I think when we do that, whether we realize it or not, what we're saying is that every Christian, every follower, quote unquote, follower of Christ, every church is representative of salt and light. But... If I survey the landscape of at least the Western church, I can't say with full confidence that everything I see is good, uh, let alone representative of, of salt and light. After all, uh, when preachers start to sound more like politicians or when sermons start to sound more and more like hateful rhetoric or when the pursuit of salvation turned out to just be the pursuit of platform or when you thought that you were building the kingdom and it turns out that you were just building a petty empire, I have to wonder, is this really salt and light simply because it's under the banner of the church? And look, I'm not trying to, to call anybody out or condemn anybody. That's, that's not my heart. That's not the goal of this sermon. But what I am saying is I think it is a dangerous notion to assume that we are salt and light simply based of, off of our affiliation to the teaching of Jesus or our affiliation with the church. Or to borrow from the implicit warning that we find in this metaphor, I think it's dangerous to assume that we are immune to becoming flavorless salt and covered light. So back to our question. Who is Jesus talking to when he calls them salt and light? Who is he referencing? 
Well, I believe that Jesus actually answers this question for us if we back up just a bit to Matthew chapter five, verse three. And I've condensed this down just for the sake of time. But he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those of you who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Who is salt and light? It is a community that embodies the Beatitudes. It's a community that has recognized their need and a dependence for a savior. It's a community who mourn the pain and the sin in this world. It's a community that has been given authority and yet they refuse to abuse that authority. It's a community that shows mercy when the rest of the world is shouting, take vengeance. It's a community that would do anything for the sake of the gospel and for the name of Jesus. It is a community that is antithetical to this world's cultures, ideologies, philosophies, and governments. This, this is the community that Jesus calls salt and light. And look, I do not mean to suggest that this is some set of ideals that we're meant to strive for or pursue. I don't think that's it at all. I think that this is our identity, that as we conform to the teaching of Jesus, as we begin to align with the way that he sees the world, to align with his moral ethic, these things begin to be produced in us. These things begin to become a part of our identity. Or in a more condensed way is that when we follow the teachings of Jesus, we begin to image him. We begin to look like him. We begin to reflect him. We show those around us who he is through how we are. After all, we're generous because he was generous. We're merciful because he was merciful. We're righteous, not because of our own work or our own performance, because he was righteous, died righteous, and rose again. So who is salt and light? It is a community that looks like Jesus, that talks like Jesus, that confronts like Jesus, and that loves like Jesus. This is who salt and light is, and it is the foundation that we need when we approach this text. And it's on this foundation that we can ask our next question about salt and about light, and that is how. How are we salt and light? Well, I think in order to answer this question, we obviously need to take a look at the attributes that Jesus has chosen to define his disciples. So first is salt, the salt of the earth, as he called us. Now, salt had many different applications in that day. They're all incredible. Uh, it was, salt had inherent value. It was used as a currency to pay people. It's where we get the expression, he's worth his salt. Uh, it was used to treat and to salve wounds, so incredibly useful there. Uh, it was obviously used to flavor some food Come on, somebody said amen. I love some sodium on some food. It's a good time. So all of these applications are great and they should be applied to our behavior as disciples that just as there is value in salt, so there is value in this gathering. Just as there is a curative quality to salt, so too should there be a curative quality to the disciples of Jesus. Just as salt seasons things and makes it taste mm, so much better, so too should we season things in a way where people get a taste of the goodness of God. 
All of these applications are great, but I want to focus in and narrow in on one particular application that I believe would have stood out the most to the community that Jesus is speaking to. And it's this idea of salt as preservation. You see, back in that day, they could not refrigerate their food. And so in order to prevent it from spoiling, they would often season it with salt. Well, I believe this would have stood out to this community because they would have actually recognized the correlation to a command that's found in Leviticus 2, a command that they would have practiced almost annually. Check this out. It says, season all your grain offerings with salt to remind you of God's eternal covenant. This term covenant, it simply means, if you're not familiar with it, it means an agreement between two parties. In modern day terms, you can think of this like a lease or a legal contract, or in fact, if you have ever been to a wedding, you have seen a covenant take place. Now, God had made many covenants with his people, but I believe the, the most obvious and the most prominent covenant we have today is the new covenant that Jesus gives to his disciples at the Last Supper, that our access to eternity and our right standing with the Heavenly Father is is no longer based on our performance on what we can do, but rather our relationship with Jesus and our faith in the finished work of the cross. So theologians agree that when we see salt represented in scripture, it carries this idea of the eternal nature of God's covenant, of its durability, of its preservation. And so what is Jesus saying when he calls us the salt of the earth? I believe it's this. It's that we represent the preservation of his covenant wherever we go. Come on, don't we testify to the truth of this some 2,000 years later, that the new covenant that Jesus made and signed in his blood has been preserved through the long line of disciples that identify with him. That even when persecution afflicts the church, his covenant is preserved. Even when impropriety infects and distorts the image of the church, his covenant is preserved. Why? Because there's some salt out there that hasn't lost its flavor. There are some disciples that have resolved to image Jesus, and it's their commitment commitment and their sacrifice and their faithfulness to his teaching that we can testify to this day that the gospel, the good news of the cross, is still changing and transforming lives even to this very age. And now, us as the modern day disciples, we get the opportunity to continue that legacy. That wherever we go, whatever social circle, whatever community, whatever city, whatever nation, wherever we find ourselves, there exists a preservation of his covenant. And in this covenant is the good news. It is the gospel. It's the work of the cross. That's what Jesus is telling us when he calls us salt and light. But wait, because there's more. Because he doesn't just refer to us as the, the salt of the earth, but he also calls us the light of the world. And this phrase, light of the world, it would have immediately evoked the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 60 as he prophesied about God's renewed kingdom and the light that was coming that would radically change everything we knew and how we interacted with God. This idea of the light of the world, it, it represents this idea of God's glory and authority represented and manifested, physically present, physically available. And 
I, I'll reference this a little bit later, but Jesus in John 8, he refers to himself as the light of the world. And I don't think we have a greater example of the physical, the manifest expression of God's glory and authority apart from Jesus. So what is, what is Jesus saying to his disciples when he calls us the light of the world? I think it's this. I think it's that we too are meant to display God's glory and authority on the earth. No pressure, no pressure. How do we do that? How do we display God's glory and authority? Well, I think that the way that we do this is through the image and example of our Savior. After all, isn't the greatest display of God's glory and authority a life transformed? That you were broken and distant, and yet he calls you son and daughter. That you were broken and chained and addicted, and yet he sets you free. That you were arrogant or insecure, and yet he calls you to his purpose. Isn't it the living testimony of the believer? Isn't this evidence of God's glory and authority? That as our minds are renewed and as our lives are transformed, it serves to display to everybody around us that we serve a God who is glorious and who has all authority. Amen? So what's the meaning? What's the meaning in this metaphor? What is Jesus trying to communicate to his disciples? I think it's this. It's that when we commit to following Jesus, we begin to image him, and in imaging him, we preserve God's covenant, and we testify to God's glory. But there's one more thing we need to examine before we can move past this point, and that is the implicit warning that we find in this metaphor. And so in this context of of imaging Jesus, of being a, a preservation of his covenant, of displaying his glory and his authority, what does it mean to be flavorless salt and covered light? Well, a very quick Google search will tell you that what causes salt to lose its flavor is this idea of dilution. And to dilute something, according to the dictionary, and catch this, is to make it weaker in force, content, or value by modifying it or adding other elements to it. How does salt lose its flavor? How does light lose its efficacy? I believe it gets diluted. And look, to be clear, I don't think that we can dilute God's covenant, pretty sure about that. Uh, don't believe that we can dilute his glory and his authority, pretty confident about that. So what does get diluted? I believe it is our image bearing. It's how we represent Christ to those around us. It's our words, it's our actions, it's our deeds. And this leads us to our confrontational, uncomfortable question of the week. If you've been coming to the Father's house for any amount of time, you know that we like to ask at least one of these and so you can get ready to check this box off your list of attendance. Because if, if my journey of faith, if your journey of faith is meant to image our savior, if it's meant to be a preservation of his covenant, if it's meant to display his glory and authority, we must wrestle with this question. Is my journey of faith characterized by discipleship or by dilution? Do I have a desire to look more like Jesus or do I dilute the teaching because discipleship is often inconvenient? Let me give you an example. I know Jesus would call me to love my neighbor, but oh man, my neighbor's actually on the other side of the political aisle and that's, I don't know if I can do that. I think I'm gonna dilute the teaching a little bit on that one. 
Or, you know, I know Jesus would call me to be fully dependent on the Heavenly Father, but oh, I don't really like that. I'd rather be dependent on myself or my money or my addictions or my relationships. So oh, I think I'm going to have to dilute the teaching on that one. Or how about this? I know Jesus would call me to forgiveness and to seek restoration, but ah, this offense in my heart, oh, it's just a little too great. I don't really want to let that go. I think I'm going to have to dilute the teaching. How about this one? I know Jesus would call me to endure persecution and public ridicule, but that's, that's a little uncomfortable. I don't really like that. I think I'd rather shout with somebody or get into an argument online with a stranger or get into a fight with somebody. So I think, I, I think I'm gonna have to dilute the teaching on that one. How about this? I know Jesus would call me to represent him in whatever social circle I find myself, but in this particular situation, ah, oh, that's a little awkward and inconvenient. I think I'm gonna dilute the teaching on that one. We have to wrestle with this question. Am I a disciple or do I dilute the teaching? And look, guys, I ask myself this question almost daily. It's usually when I'm behind somebody going too slow on the freeway. I tend to dilute the teaching of Jesus through my excessive and aggressive horn usage. You can pray for me. But if we're going to be a church that is resolved to image Jesus, to represent salt and light, we have to wrestle with this question. And how do we even answer this question? How do we even know that the image that we are presenting to the world aligns with the image of Jesus? How can we be sure that, that, that we are in alignment with his teaching, especially when he's not physically present and we can't physically see him? How do we know and how can we have confidence that we align with the image of Jesus? Well, I believe it comes down to how often and how willingly we embrace conviction, namely the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Look at what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in John 16. He said, and he, when he comes, will convict the world about sin and the need for a savior and about righteousness and about judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me and my message, and about righteousness, which is personal integrity and godly character, because I am going to my Father, and catch this, you will no longer see me. We may not be able to physically see Jesus, but we can accurately image him through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's why we need to embrace this conviction in our daily lives. We need this conviction in our prayer, in reading the word, in meditation. We need to embrace the conviction of the Holy Spirit so that he can point out areas of our lives that need some realignment. And I know personally, as I have dug into the Sermon on the Mount, I have identified areas in my life that need some realignment. Some ways that I thought I was dependent on the Heavenly Father where I just turned out I was, I was dependent on myself. I need to invite this alignment into my life because I am desperate to image Christ to my wife and my son and my friends and my family. I need to embrace the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if you're here and you're like, man, that's kind of a lofty idea. I don't really know what that feels like or, or what that's supposed to be. Hey, my simple encouragement to you would just be stick around. Just stick around. Especially over the next few weeks as we go through and navigate some of Jesus' more confrontational teachings. Teachings about marriage and divorce. Teachings about unforgiveness. Teachings about hatred. 
I truly believe that if you are willing to invite the Holy Spirit in, he will be faithful. He will be faithful to reveal himself and knock on the door of your heart. And look, let me belabor this for a moment and let me clarify this because the conviction of the Holy Spirit does not feel like condemnation. It does not feel like anger. It does not feel like retribution. It is not cruel. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is gentle. It's like a whisper. I was thinking about this this morning. It's like a father who leans down to his son or his daughter and he says, hey, not that way, this way. This is the way. This is how you can be realigned. That is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And my hope and my prayer is that as a church, we would embrace conviction, not so that we can live with some moral authority or some self-righteousness, but so that we can accurately display the image of our Savior to a world that is in desperate need of light, to a world that is in desperate need of his grace and his mercy and his love. So with that, that leads us to our last and final question, and I think it is the most important question of the three, and that is why? Why are we salt and light? I think Jesus actually answers this question for us, specifically when he is talking and referring about the light of the world. So let's go back to verse 15 for a moment. He says, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that, so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. This word for praise is the word from our title. It is the word doxadso, and it has such a beautiful meaning. It means to, to make glorious, to render it excellent, to make renowned, to render illustrious, to cause the dignity and worth to become manifest and acknowledged. Man, it's this idea that as we display God's glory and authority to those around us, it evokes a response. It evokes this moment of praise, this moment of doxadso, where people come to this place of acknowledging the heavenly father and rendering him excellent. It's this idea that our light is a light that leads others to salvation. But I think there's a, a very important distinction that we have to make here because while our light may lead others to salvation, it is important to acknowledge that our light is not inherently salvation, that we do not take responsibility for salvation. Because if we do, I think we can slip into this false mentality where we think, oh, well, you know, I'm going to do whatever I got to do to get Susie saved or Billy over there, man, he's my project. Or if we just do X, Y, and Z hard enough, so-and-so is going to have a moment with Jesus. And that's not it. And look, you should share the gospel. You should share your testimony. You should, you should be the invitation. You should pray for people. But it is important and imperative that we remember our role, that our light is a reflection of his light. Let me remind you of what Jesus said about himself in John 8. He said, I am the light of the world, and if you follow me, you will not have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Our light, our display of God's glory and authority is meant to lead others to the light that does save, the light that leads out from darkness, the light that leads to eternal life. 
And as we get ready to conclude this morning and band, you guys can, can come up. I, I wanna give us um, an illustration of, of what I think this looks like. So in a moment, um, Isaac is gonna lower the lights. Don't do it just yet. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk up back there, but I wanna give us this, this illustration of, of what it looks like to traverse this space of darkness. And if you're watching from the family room or you are watching online, uh, I'm so sorry if this moment doesn't translate. Well, I, I miss you. I wish you were here, um, but let's, let's do this. I'm gonna walk back here. Isaac, you can go ahead and start lowering the lights. So this space of darkness, it doesn't represent obviously a physical space. It represents a, a spiritual space. It's a, it's a place that I think many of us have been or have walked through. It's this space of chasing down desires or dreams or sins, whatever you wanna call them. And yet at the fruition of those things, it doesn't satisfy. It leaves us empty and alone, feeling like we're in a, a vast sea, a void, and not having any clear direction. Now, Jesus, he refers to himself as the light of the world. Go ahead and bring up that light, Isaac. Now, I can see that light from a distance. Maybe I've heard of the light. Maybe your friends told me about the light. Maybe I've seen a sermon online, or maybe I have a religious background, and so I'm familiar but there's a problem. There's all this space between me and the light. And I could do my best to try and traverse this space, but in this darkness, I'm gonna fall. I'm gonna stumble. I might incur an injury. I might get disillusioned. I might say, man, if the light is so good, why am I still stumbling around in the darkness? And look, by the grace of God, some of us do traverse this space and we do make it to the light. Or we have a Saul of Tarsus moment where the light actually comes to us. But I think based on my understanding of the church and based on the Great Commission, I think this traversal of darkness looks like this, is that when I'm in this space, I meet a disciple. When I'm pursuing wealth and fortune, when I have a desire to have all the lavish things in the world, or maybe my desire for wealth comes from this fear of lack, I meet a disciple. I meet Seth. And Seth, man, Seth embodies generosity. Seth actually gives an income or a portion of his income to the church. That's crazy. Why does he do that? And when someone in his community has a need, he steps up, he fulfills that need, it's, it's, it's crazy. And yet as I get to know him and I examine his life, I realize he's got a peace about him. He's not worried about his financial prospects. He seems to trust in the fact that there's a provider that's gonna take care of all his needs. And as I get to know him, he becomes a light and it's his light that leads me closer and closer to the light. Or maybe my darkness looks like the pursuit of power and of authority. 
and I'm willing to do whatever it takes, say whatever it takes, run over whoever it takes in order to get there. Doesn't matter that I'm burnt out or I'm stressed or I'm depressed or I'm isolated. I'm gonna pursue authority and influence until I meet a disciple. And man, I meet John. John embodies service and self-sacrifice. When I'm out here trying to, trying to get gain for myself, John is simply content in serving his community and serving his wife and in serving his kids. And as I examine his life, I recognize that there's a grace, that I'm out here burning myself out and yet he seems to thrive. He seems to be able to press forward regardless of what life throws at him. And in that moment, he becomes a light and it's his light that leads me closer and closer to the light. Or maybe my darkness looks like this space of unforgiveness where I've been hurt and I have been wronged in such a way where those around me are telling me to seek retribution, to, to get vengeance. And I live in this space of unforgiveness until I meet a disciple. I meet Dylan. Dylan embodies forgiveness. Dylan was hurt worse than I was, and yet he is still able to push past that pain. He's still able to move on somehow. Instead of drinking the poison of unforgiveness, it's like he has the antidote. And as I examine his life and as I get to know him, I realize, man, I need that antidote. I need what he has. He's become a light that leads me closer and closer and closer to the light, to the light that does save, to the light that does transform, to the light that is glorious and excellent. And I find myself in this space confessing who he is and acknowledging that there was a savior that died for my sins. There was a savior that made me righteous so I could be in right standing with the heavenly father. I go from this moment of darkness to acknowledging him. I go from this moment of darkness to doxatso. I go from, from living in this space to recognizing his glory and his splendor and his worthiness. And then something beautiful happens. As I sit in this space, as my mind is renewed and my life is transformed, he calls me to do the very same thing that Dylan and John and Seth did for me. Why are we salt and light? It's so that those around us, our community, our friends, our family, our loved ones can have this moment where they go from darkness to doxatso, where they go from living where they're at to this moment of acknowledgement, this moment of seeing God for who he really is and their lives will be transformed. My hope and my prayer this morning is that we would be a church that displays Jesus that enables people to have this moment where they go from darkness to doxadso, that we would be representative of salt and light, not so that we can be better, not so that we can have religious authority, but so that those around us can have a transformative moment of acknowledgement, amen? Let's pray and, uh, and we'll conclude the service. Lord, I thank you, I thank you for your light. I thank you that it has transformed so many lives. 
I thank you for, for what you're doing in our midst. And my, my humble prayer for this community today is that we would be people that would be representative of salt and light, that we would be people that display your love and your grace and your mercy. Help us, Holy Spirit. Help us to embrace conviction. Bring realignment where it's needed. Bring realignment back to the teaching of Jesus, not for arrogance, not for religious sake, not so we can follow some set of rules, because we are desperate as a community to display your love to those around us. And if you're here this morning, man, you would not identify as a disciple, you wouldn't identify as, as a follower of Jesus. I truly believe there is an invitation for you this morning to step into the light. That it is not your track record, it's not your merit, it's not your performance that allows you to step into this position. It is simply the grace of Jesus. It's what he did on the cross. It's acknowledging who he truly is and making a decision in your heart that you are going to follow him. And so I'm not gonna belabor this. In a moment, we are gonna say a prayer as a community and it's a prayer of, a, it's really an invitation for you to step in and for you to become his disciple, for you to have this encounter with the light. But before we do that, if that is you this morning, I would love to just acknowledge you. I would love to look you in the eyeballs and just say, well done. Thank you for, for, for taking this opportunity. If that's you with nobody looking around, would you just raise your hand and look at me? Come on, right there. Come on, bro. Amen. Is there any, right there. <laughs> How could I miss you? Come on. Praise God. Is there anybody else? Anybody else? I'm sorry if I didn't see you. Right there, come on. Praise God. Anyone else? Right there. Thank you for waving. Right there. Come on. Okay. This is fantastic. This is why we do what we do every single Sunday. So church, as, as one community, as one family, let's, let's say this prayer together. Say, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died and rose again. And today, I am making a decision to follow you. Help me to learn your ways and grow in grace until I meet you in eternity. In your name, amen. Come on, can we celebrate with those who made that decision? That's incredible. That is incredible. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.